0: welcome to dig it this is edge with my co-host corey lynn of corey's digs and we have a special guest back with us today who we will introduce in just a moment but first i want to hand it over to corey for a few words
1: well it's good to be back good to hear your voice edge
0: you too it's been quite,
1: quite some time since we've done a podcast I had to uh, take a bit of a break for a family emergency and I'm, I'm not going to get into that right now, but I did publish an article um, called, I've been waiting for this for, or I've waited a long time for this. And uh, so people can read that kind of just gives you a little background on how I got into doing this work and where I'm heading with it. And I'm super excited to be back and we're going to kind of kick off with an every other week podcast to start. And it's great because we have John back on. So it's going to be a good, uh, I think, mostly positive podcast for this episode. And I'm actually going to turn it over to Edge to kind of take the lead on this because I've been so out of the loop for the past month and a half. So I'm actually very interested to hear what John has to say and what these updates are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So now it's time to introduce our special guest. Uh, who has come back on the show, John Clark, who is the author of the book Small Farm Republic and the Small Farm Republic Substack. He also does a lot of work for Liberty Nation News. He has an extensive background as an attorney, an author, and a farmer, and he brings a wealth of knowledge to many of the issues that we're facing today, especially related to food Agriculture, health, and of course, the climate hoax, so we're excited to have you back John. welcome
2: well, thanks so much for having me i'm I'm honored
0: It's great to see you um and to have this at be our our first podcast back um, with you as our guest. so um, we have a variety of topics and articles that you've written about to dive into today which all share this sort of central theme that we're winning the narrative in many cases and many arenas and making some significant gains uh, on this, these various assaults on our freedoms. But before we get into these topics and articles, can you give us a brief update on any things that you've been working on lately?
2: Well, I continue now. uh, Since I've been on, actually, it may have been uh, I've become a staff writer uh, with Liberty Nation. I write with them regularly. I actually have a piece that will be coming out in the next day or two that is talking related to this issue uh, about Joe Biden's latest uh, backpedaling on EV cars in particular and um, adjusting deadlines for EPA regulations and a lot of other things, a total shift in attitude which is a response to facts which is what we're talking about here that over time are we we're winning the narrative because truth has a way of triumphing and coming to the surface over lies um and so i have my writing there i have some other writing i have a book i may be working on um i I won't share the title just yet it's a working title but it's about it's about food and the peril we're in and i thank you for asking it i write regularly and, and i write also with american spectator and american thinker and I have um, another piece coming out with Front Porch Republic. I have another some other pieces. So I consolidate that at my Substack, and it's free. It's Small Farm Republic. And, of course, people are invited to join me there for that conversation and comment.
0: Awesome. Yeah, a lot of really well-respected publications that you're associated with and a lot of great writings. And we're going to get into some of those recent writings lately. Uh, first up, you just kind of alluded to that, which is – Um, Let's talk a bit about how the um, the climate hoax narrative seems to be falling apart, because as you so rightly put it, truth is on our side and it's bubbling to the surface. People are starting to see that and how that appears to play into this decline in demand for electric vehicles that we're seeing across the board. You uh, wrote a recent article about that. Can you tell us about that and just kind of where you see this trend going?
2: Well, and I've been writing a few about that. So I think you're referring to the one about EV failures in the cold Uh, snap.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Okay. And so, um, yeah, you mentioned how it's bubbling up. And let me use an an analogy then if I could pick up on your metaphor. Well, uh, let's start looking at the mud puddle before we look at the bubbles, you know, the forest before the trees. It's interesting as you introduce this subject that really my background, I was an attorney for years. I got into farming through Lyme disease and I just shifted And then those two things came together for me to learn about my food supply. When I got into this issue and then set out to write my book to try to support small farms and the importance of local agriculture on so many levels, it was not my plan to be involved with what you referred to rightly, increasingly, obviously, as a climate hoax. I mean, frankly, even I mean, if the if the climate is warming, these are opportunist industries that don't care about that and are just making a dollar warming it faster with EV cars and solar panels. And I wrote about this years ago. And I also wrote about the political division where Americans once agreed that we all should regulate chemicals that cause cancer and all kinds of health problems. and um, But somehow we got into this carbon kick. And so part of what my book is about, part of what we see coming home to roost now, was that if we looked past carbon and looked at chemicals, we'd all agree but also we'd see that ev cars weren't so good that solar panels weren't so good so there are layers and layers in the upon which Um, This is unraveling. And of course, it all dragged me into it because of the attack on cows and agriculture, which there are problems with pollution and industrial agriculture. And apparently the world's only seen it when it became about carbon, but it's been a problem for a long time with neonicotinoids and atrazine and glyphosate. And in the last 20 years, a host of novel chemicals that are saturating our bodies and our children and our animals and our soil, killing our microbiome. So ev cars are failing on all of the advertising wins uh w- supposed wins one big win was supposed to be help the climate well people are realizing that ev cars actually absorb a lot of materials and mine materials especially batteries and lithium uh, upon in, in their manufacturing and then in their disposal and so they they don't satisfy the climate cell the pitch was climate cell number two that they will somehow save you money. Well, they cost about twice as much as another car uh, as it is. The more government, which I'm talking about this in my upcoming article, the more government pushes people to buy EV cars and away from gas powered cars, they're actually gonna drive up the costs of the gas powered cars because that's what people want. And what may, many people may not recall is that in the nineties we had EV cars and the whole industry failed then because consumers didn't wanna pay a lot of money for something that was unreliable. And then it took an hour to charge. Now we see with the cold snap, cars stranded along the road because batteries don't work in the cold. We know this whether it's a, a drill or a car. And they get worse the colder it gets. People were stranded. Charging stations weren't working. They were backed up. It, the battery, once it's cold, takes much longer to call, uh, charge. And they lose about 40% of their efficiency if it's cold because if you have the heater on. So all of a sudden, these cars that have been very popular in California are are just not cutting the mustard in cold uh, climates. So you add all of these things up and they're not delivering on any of the proposed benefits and they're and they're encountering insurmountable hurdles like the grid and charging stations and it's like we're already spending billions hundreds of billions of dollars off the cliff on this and now it's unraveling. Well, same things happen with solar panels and and um synthetic meat.
0: Yeah, um, not to anyways, mention I hope the supply that answers chain your question
2: Right. But not to mention,
0: I was just going to add to what you said, um, not to mention the supply chain issues when it comes to those battery components. Right. I mean, because a lot of that is is controlled by China um, and these these car companies are all competing for a very limited supply.
2: Well, that's true for all products, but yes, these are particularly precious substances, but also some of them are very common. Um, the silicon used in uh, solar panels is made from sand and coal. And people are finding out about that and that they're building coal-fired plants at the rate of two a week in China to make the materials for solar panels to be used here to reduce our greenhouse gases. Uh, However, the same is true of EV cars, not just the lithium and the batteries and the mining, but also the steels. Most of the steels are, I should say, aluminum that we use in our uh, manufacturing of VVs is, um, is is a smolted, or however they make it, in, I think smolted in China using coal-powered fire plants. So people are just over time, the things that were hidden, the externalized costs of production are now coming to the fore. We know about the labor issues, right? Yeah. And so the more you look at this, but also what we're starting to see is that we have a limited number of a, amount of resources that we cannot treat as if they're infinite. And then all of these things also end up in landfills and batteries are particularly bad that way. Right. So yes, it's unraveling. On the Dad, I, have of-
1: a, I have a question for you. You yes, you please. said at the very beginning that Biden was uh backpedaling on the electric vehicles. Can you tell us what you're referencing because I've been out of the loop so I'm really curious to hear what what this
2: backpedal is? Well, it's really quite interesting, actually. I'm glad you asked for it, because actually, if you look at it, he's actually not backpedaling. He's pausing. And the underlying cause, I'm sure this would be so um, unimaginable to conceive of, but is that auto workers and others are furious with him and are not going to vote for him. And he needs the United Auto Workers Union to back him in 2024. And so apparently the environment and all of its demands are going to be put on hold because he's got an angry mob on his hands. Um, Again, the same failures of the 90s when the private industry was subsidized, then it failed. The EV car failed. The technology has improved, but not enough apparently to overcome these fundamental problems. Um, And so now uh, the, the high costs, people are seeing that these are really elitist vehicles. Another thing, I wrote a whole article about increasingly studies showing these are regressive, that you're taxing um, lower middle class Americans to fund $70,000 cars for people who can afford them. And that is not progressive. That's literally taking money from the poor uh, and giving it to the wealthy. And I've challenged legislators here in Vermont about this. And the answer is always, well, but we're helping the poor. We're taking money from the poor, but they're the ones who will suffer most from climate change. I literally have this on uh, film from legislators in Vermont saying this. And um, so now you need votes and there's a huge problem. The government, much like a Stalinist or Chinese five-year plan, dictated how many cars people were going to be drive, driving that were EVs by such and such a date and how many charging stations and all this these, these goals for CO2. Well, reality and markets don't necessarily like all your plans. And so they haven't bought all these cars. Um, leasing companies are demanding and receiving repayment of monies from EV manufacturers because the car prices have plummeted so precipitously that they're taking a bath. Hertz cut something like 20,000 EV cars. I forget the number. It's in an article I wrote. There are a few there about this uh, because they, they were even uh, boasting about their alliance with the Biden administration at Hertz and how they were buying, I think it was 80,000 EVs, but people don't want to rent them especially if you're on a long trip and it takes you two hours to charge it, that might mean you have to take an extra day if you have to stop twice and the range of the car is 230 miles, let's say. I'm going to rent a, a, you know, a, a gas-powered car. So the customers are not buying what the government is heavily subsidizing, despite subsidies, despite all kinds of regulatory favoritism. So it's failing on all levels. And so Biden has to both back off because of the reality that he's not going to meet his goals, despite spending billions and billions of dollars in the ironically named Inflation Reduction Act. He actually subsequently said it shouldn't have been called that because it was really about the climate. Um, it's also about healthcare and equity. Uh, none of it's going to help um, inflation. Actually, it's going to make it worse. Funding Chinese uh, purchases of Chinese solar panels and EV cars through debt, it does not actually boost our economy or help our debt load. It's just another shocker. So it's started that. to be so long-winded, but there are so many levels upon which he's backpedaling. And he is saying, though, that he's going to reinstitute the EPA rules for tailpipe admissions because that's what they've paused on because that's an attack on gasoline cars, which are what Americans are still buying. And the manufacturers are taking a bath on EV cars, so they're balking and laying off workers. So we have a, a full-blown unfolding catastrophe in an election, a presidential election year.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess
2: the climate doesn't count as much as Joe Biden's re-election. It's what we're seeing.
0: I <laughs> see that. Yeah. Well, let's shift for our focus for a second. Um, still talking obviously about the climate <laughs> scam, but more of that as it relates to the assaults on food and farming, which as I know, I know is an issue that's close to your heart. We've seen massive protests, protests by farmers in the EU for months now. They're not stopping. It looks like they see until they see like real concessions from the governments on dangerous anti-farming climate policies. Where do you see that heading?
2: That's a real showdown. I'm fascinated uh, by Europe. I, I I lived there for several years in the UK in particular, but I've I've spent time in Holland and France in particular, and those farmers are all rebelling, but also now Poland and Italy and Ireland, and they've seemed to sustain it. And so there are some uh, very interesting contrasts between um, agriculture, that industry there and here. And this will be more my impressions. So I could be wrong about some of this, but what always struck me about living in Europe and all over Europe was that what we would call zoning laws were set up in a way that agricultural land was preserved. It it couldn't be sold for development as it is here. And here we would say, well, free market. And so we took a lot of farmland a lot more quickly and developed it into suburban areas where Europeans they have their tiny little, you know, yards. We like our big yards. We have even for Vermont in Vermont for a while, we had a 10-acre minimum lot requirement for a while in an effort to keep open spaces. They got rid of that for other reasons. And um so, but Europe is also, uh, so they've managed, I think, over time demographically to retain more of those family farms, we would call them. In the U.S., again, partly due to that, um, the the land, but also the big areas we have and the big industries we have in farming, uh, it's lent itself towards consolidation, enabled by the government very much in the 80s, the whole big getter, uh, big uh, get bigger, get out uh, movement and so we actually have sort of a, a striation. If you, you look at USDA statistics, we have some really, really big farms making like 90 million acres of corn, et cetera. And then we have thousands of little tiny farms because they include anybody who makes over $1,000 a year in food sales as a farmer in their statistics. In Europe, you still have, I think, a much larger middle class of farmers in a, a sort of a middle tier of farming production, which is actually where, as I explained in the book, where, where the real backbone of farming is. It's not really, it's in those mid-sized farms and they're being destroyed. If you look at the statistics, they're very highly regulated. The Europeans are way ahead of us on their climate change, EU stuff. And so they put all kinds of layers of regulations on farmers for which they're not compensated. Um, all kinds of commodity prices are increasing and there's a lot of interference in the markets. The farmers are being destroyed economically aside from attacks on cows, etc. And ironically, Holland survived Nazi imposition of famine through a blockade, and that's when they became such a vibrant, um, nurturing agrarian community was in response to that very thing. And now we have this, we've come full circle, and they're trying to shut them down again. And so there are some environmental issues, particularly places like Holland, but Ireland is is mostly shifted to grass-fed cows at the government's encouragement. Why are they talking about getting rid of 200,000 cows? And as I write in my book, cows are actually they sequester carbon and they are part of they rebuild soils. So you're going to replace their manure with more synthetic fertilizers. So something's really smelling skanky in Denmark and you don't see it in this these shores yet, I think because a we don't have the high amount of regulation and b if we did have farmers revolt who would they be i mean they're they're more like really huge or really tiny but we in america already have signals by our government and globalists that they're coming after our farms too
0: right and i think that the um the public has become much more aware of this The hashtags like no farmers, no food has really caught on. And despite the fact that the media really does not portray these protests with the amount of significance that they should, um, they really have caught caught on on social media. People have become really aware and supportive of this because they recognize it's a very simple concept of how you overregulate the production of food, you're going to have famines uh, ultimately, right? What do you think? I mean, I, obviously this is an existential threat for EU farmers, but it impacts us globally, does it not? Even, um, you know, what 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 the, the EU does as far as farming goes, the production of the food supply, I mean, would be terribly impacted, would it not?
2: Well, yes, and that's what's already happening there. And even a lot of... Um... Animal rights or animal welfare regulation has really driven up costs and California with a proposal or Proposition 12, I think it was imposed um, swine rules on the entire our entire nation. So all of these things add to costs. And so interestingly, food is the number one issue. And those in power know this. A lot of the other things they do, Second Amendment, what have you, or what I call watch the birdie distractions, all the identity stuff. They don't really care about the people that they're in their woke movement, that they're pretending to liberate. They're actually exploiting them like Marxists always have. The end goal is uh, attributed to Kissinger, control the food, control the people. Stalin did it. Mao did it. Uh, Pol Pot did it. Um we did it the american indians why don't we think the government and the corporations that want to control it for profit if not for power and who will taint taint it and compromise it with chemicals and hydrogenated fats and you know high fructose corn syrup and things that are bad for our children and and then paint them up in rainbows to make a profit at our expense why why would we trust them with our food supply Uh, But interestingly, I think part of this conversation as reality comes home to roost with EV cars, it has with synthetic meats that has so many billions, even maybe trillions of dollars thrown at it. It's collapsing. It's undoable. And meanwhile, beef prices are going through the roof. Beef did not go up as much during COVID because of a severe drought and an increase in imports uh, from Brazil. The drought caused people to prematurely send animals, including uh, breeding stock, to slaughter. And so as of today, I checked earlier, we're at three cents away from the highest price ever in America for live cattle. And I'll tell you, as a farmer, I haven't looked at it historically, but generally speaking, this is not a time of year where it would be spiking. February, middle of winter, that wouldn't be happening. Um, and so as I discussed in this article that you're showing here from Liberty Nation, um, there are reasons why this has happened and why it's going to get worse. Now, the higher the price of an American's hamburger gets, the more they're going to scoff at the synthetic meat that doesn't exist anyway, or claims that cows emit gas, uh, because people just know better intuitively. And the more they look at that and look at how important manure is and how much well-treated cows, particularly grass-fed cows, sequester carbon, have healthier meat, healthier animals, Red meat's probably actually good for you, despite vegan claims. People are looking into the truth as a response sometimes to all of the lies. And the compulsion, the compulsion to buy an EV car or pay for it if you don't, the compulsion to what? Eat cricket burgers? People are starting to recoil at things that are so obviously false. So the front lines will be cows. We now have fewer cows in this country than we had in 1962.
0: Wow. That's an incredible and milk, statistic. and milk
2: prices are up. So those cows as well are not being culled because part of where McDonald's hamburgers come from is old dairy cows. Well, if they're if you're making more on your milk, you're going to keep all your cows back longer because they're maintaining profitability where they wouldn't in a low uh, milk price market.
0: Sorry. Yeah, I think that you're right uh, with regards to people becoming really aware about the globalists plan for us to eat bugs and fake meat and how that is playing into this collapse of the fake meat market. You talked about that a moment ago. Um, does, is there anything else? Cause I know that you wrote a couple of articles about the fake meat market failure. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and what you see happening in 2024?
2: Sure. I mean the, the short version, cause I hope I'm not being too long-winded in these answers, but I'm trying to con- combine a lot of stuff, and I will here. Um, the synthetic meat was rep- was represented to corporations and venture capitalists originally as a way to make a lot more money. Um, you know, Monsanto and other companies have for decades tried to figure out how to get rid of the farmers because the farmers take some of their profit share. They might have them in the food chain, but if they could get rid of them, you know, and just buy carrots directly from you know a machine, then you know the more they can mechanize, the more they can get rid of the humans, uh, the more they increase their profits. so here was an opportunity to get rid of this overhead called beef or other meats, and it was presented in a lot of original prospectuses um, as you could replace the beef part of the meat, like forty or fifty percent of it with soy or corn or another plant substance, and imagine how much cheaper that is, and it was all kind of pie in the sky. It was really kind of like a turning lead into. Uh, gold scam. You know, that's an old one. And people got so excited about it. And we live in a time of technical mysticism. People believe science can do anything because look what we're doing right now. It's done amazing things. And so people are, are ready to believe it can do everything and anything. The problem is um, scale. And, um, and what is it? So one, one is a cost. Cost is the other thing. They have failed abysmally on both. And one of my articles uh, sort of uh, rewrites a Wired investigation from Wired Magazine about particular companies in California that were representing to the public that they were making synthetic chicken and having people eat on it. But while they showed pictures of these big magnific- magnificent uh, silver stainless steel vats where they were growing these things and they weren't, they didn't work, it doesn't work, they can't do it. In fact, they were growing them in another lab in individual plastic bottles Manually, with people with swabs, and then using a little spatula to scrape out the growth of cells in this goop and throwing away all the non recyclable bottles. I mean, the whole thing was an environmental disaster. How much does it cost to build the vats and the factory and all the rest of it? Um, And so, really, it becomes about profit. And this is what it's it's always been about. So, the synthetic meat won't work. And now you've got billions and billions of dollars. Nobody's made any money on it. Now, we're not talking about fake meats. And that's another category of problem. They can at least make them, uh, but more and more vegans and others are eating them and A, they don't taste good. B, they're generally kind of expensive and C, you start reading the ingredients and you realize they're as highly processed as real chicken McNuggets or other things. And that if you're health conscious and or vegan many times are, you don't want that. So that's, that's an industry that's also collapsing right now. I think 2024 will see some major um, consolidation in that industry.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that people have really learned uh, a lot about this industry and seen um, how not only is it gross, but it's unhealthy. And this whole sell about how it's better for the environment somehow is a complete lie when you find out all the chemicals and the byproducts and the way that they produce this stuff. It's not good for the environment at all.
2: Well, that's certainly something I've emphasized. If you're going to make a synthetic meat, for instance, out of soy and corn that are grown with GMO technologies, then you're polluting the planet far, far more than a grass-fed cow ever could. Um, you know, using the solar panels that God made that are green and use photosynthesis and don't need to be landfilled. Um, so so a lot of these things are, are just starting to unravel. I'll be curious to see if there are lawsuits by investors in the synthetic meat department, though, because that's really a case of perhaps false misrepresentation or fraud um, to have alleged that you were going to provide uh, limitless, cheap, tasty meat to people because they did. Uh, The money there is huge, and maybe that will be a lesson to people. But I think that's going to push people back to appreciating their cows again. So sort of the pendulum will swing back. I have to say, though, There is some appeal to the idea of using cockroaches to convert restaurant waste into pet food.
0: Okay. (laughs) could Elaborate on that because I'm not sure what what exactly you're talking about.
2: (laughs) Well, so um, in China, they're doing it and they actually do vertical farming now uh, with pigs. I think I was reading one pig facility is, I think, 28 stories high. They do it with cockroaches and they have closed facilities where they have tens of millions of cockroaches. Apparently the munching sound is quite loud when you walk in and they use conveyor belts to bring restaurant waste from human consumption in for the cockroaches to eat. And then they um, convert the cockroaches to a powder that under traditional Chinese medicine is actually medicinal. So you can sell it to humans, Uh, but bugs as a meat replacement or protein replacement if it was healthy enough for cats and dogs would probably be an arguably effective way, whether or not it's environmentally sound as a farming angle, might actually be a really good way to reclaim food waste that otherwise is filling up landfills, which is a precious space. Whether or not um, methane is a problem, it's, it's tragic that we, um, we throw away about 40 to 50% of our food in this country. So if we could convert that to dog or cat food, we put about 25% of our, our meat production, our beef production included, I believe, into pet foods in this country. Um, so anyway, I'm just saying there might be something amongst all of these great ideas that actually works. And, and I'd like to give credit where credit's due to prove that I'm not just a naysayer, but I'm being proven right. I've been writing about this stuff for for years and as other, have others because it's just so ludicrous to a farmer but to a technocrat making money to dream up fantasy ideas that they actually might think are real has become a new industry.
0: Right. Corey, did you want to say something?
1: Well, I think everyone needs to be making their own pet food from meat and vegetables and fruit and herbs and not be buying pet food out there or kibble because kibble's just no good for your dogs or cats. That's how them. people
2: used to do it. There's yeah. no pet food industry
1: right Yeah. definitely wouldn't want to feed pets uh cockroaches i i know that they they are yeah what's the other one though not is it crickets
2: crickets they, they're cockroaches, already using... um mealworms um there are actually a lot of different potential edible protein rich bugs but you know i'm appreciating my burger more all the time
1: yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, speaking of, um, so we've talked about the faked meats, you talked a bit about real beef, tell us about these articles a little bit more in depth uh, that you've recently put out about the attacks on beef, the case for for cows, having more cows, not fewer cows to help the environment, and um, also I know that you you spoke a bit about the rising beef prices, if there's anything you want to add to that.
2: So, um, interesting segue there because, again, back to your intro and the broader issue of truth triumphing over fiction. Um, I think hopefully more and more people will understand that if someone's willing to tell you, sell you one form of snake oil, they might be able to sell you a bunch of others. And um, it's interesting how much the narrative has been shaped around this cow thing. It wasn't just AOC coming down against cow flatulence. Uh, People laugh that off, but then it was picked up by everybody from John Kerry to Al Gore and Klaus Schwab and the whole world is against cows, even though we all just know that this is is nonsensical. Um, What other areas might that apply to? You mean like vaccine safety and efficacy from Pfizer who gave us OxyContin? Uh, You mean about who actually opened the border up or whether the president's memory is sound or, you know, whatever your politics are? We see a mainstream media lying to us. And when the World Economic Forum, which is populated by so-called partners that include Monsanto, now Bayer, and Syngenta, and Cargill and and all of the usual players, DuPont and Dow, and they're all in there and they're going to save the world with industrial food. And then they tell you, that they're going to have synthetic meat and cows are bad, you might start wondering about the mainstream media messaging. And so I wrote the article about more cows. That was on American Spectator because little noticed at um, at the summit, um, COP28, I think they call it in Dubai, that all this stuff about climate change, a big theme was to regain uh, credibility and trust because more and more people are looking at this WEF as if they're from outer space. There was a whole... A panel of soil experts, of which one that I reference in the article is from here in Vermont. And the whole theme, and I quote from him, uh, was why we need more cows to sequester carbon using traditional practices and not dismiss cows because of industrial uh, destructive practices that are not the cow's fault. And you didn't hear it in the media. That's why I try to write about it. Where is that? We hear all these voices. We hear Greta Thunberg. We hear all of these alarmist voices of urgency and why we need technological solutions or to give Bill Gates more power and trillions of dollars to, you know, genetically modify everything from mosquitoes to, to let splice pork with um, what is it? Soy, a British company is is going to grow soy that's spliced with swine genetics. Um, how about we just put the cows back on the grass? And here's a guy that they actually gave a platform right there in Dubai and and crickets back right. to crickets, but you hear nothing. Um, so that's why I, I, encourage people to read his words and others who actually understand cows and soil scientists uh, soil science, Joel Salatin, uh, Wendell Berry, you know, many people have been writing about, although Leopold told us this a hundred years ago, and we're, we're just now starting learning. Frankly, we're just now learning about our microbiome and we're really starting to unearth a lot of knowledge about the microbiome which is called the soil and so um that's that's where that we're going more and more we're seeing we need more cows um if if climate change is a problem to the extent it is cows are actually a great improvement over any other things they want to do cows sequester carbon um ev cars and solar panels do not
0: Right. And so it destroys and de- deconstructs this whole narrative that these these policies that are being pushed are actually about the climate. When And people are starting to see behind the curtain and realize, no, 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 this is about controlling the food supply, right, and creating food shortages where we could have abundance. But we won't under these kinds of totalitarian uh, policies, and so people are starting to realize that. I think that um, you're right that consumers are becoming much more wise than ever before, and partly and due due to the COVID psyop, that the government they realize the government lied to them, and they no longer trust so-called authoritative figures, and they're starting to act ask questions on all kinds of issues related to our health, including our food, and they're realizing so many other things that they've been told about our health and healthy eating has been a lie, such as like the dangers of eating red meat or even the food pyramid. Which really puts an emphasis on eating crackers and breads and cereals as mm-hmm. the largest portion, and of course, it's no coincidence that we find out that these so-called healthy cereals are filled with chemicals that are known to cause infertility and delay puberty. So the point is that I think that people are becoming more, much more aware of what we have have coined as the great poisoning and taking back control over our health and our food consumption, don't you think?
1: Aren't you tired of supporting globalist agendas with your hard-earned money, sick of the impersonal big box store experience, or concerned about the safety of everyday products you use at home? I have a solution. Shopping Club Freedom is here to revolutionize the way you shop and live say goodbye to questionable ingredients and harmful chemicals they provide a carefully curated selection of safe and non-toxic everyday products from fluoride-free toothpaste to safe cleaning supplies because your health and well-being matter and my new favorite is their all-natural beef selection you can taste the difference with their premium outstanding beef their commitment to quality means you can savor every bite with confidence There's no hormones, no antibiotics, no mRNA, just pure, delicious goodness. And the best part is, it's delivered right to your door. You can enjoy the convenience of doorstep delivery. No more endless aisles or crowded checkout lines. They bring your selection straight to your home, saving you time and hassle. Join Shopping Club Freedom today and embrace a new era of shopping where you have the power to make choices that align with your values. Take control of your purchases, support local businesses, and prioritize your well-being. Your gateway to independence is just one click away, so I urge you to go to their website at shoppingclubfreedom.com and you can start your independence today.
2: I do, and I think if we look uh, at where these paths converge of their plans, then I think the food, the very various um monkey wrenchings with our food supply culminate in an electronic currency when they destroy our fiat currency system and then rescue us because once you link uh, access to food with an electronic currency slash social credit system you you are now enslaved you're completely orwellian enslaved beyond 1984. if you have your own vegetable garden and your own cow that you milk or some chickens you have liberty in fact, you know, we didn't fight the British without food. In fact, that's a big reason we defeated the British. Um, you can look at Napoleon and some other famous armies dying on the march. Food's important, and we've taken it for granted. We actually, I believe the last I checked, it's probably gone up a bit, but Americans, our average um, expenditure is about 9% of our household budgets for food. Almost no society in history has ever had that ease of life. Um, also no society in history has ever been this disconnected from their food and had it come from so far away and know so little about it. And, um, I don't, I'm not aware of any society in history, certainly on a large scale that wanted to eliminate all animals for their welfare and for our health. It makes no sense. Biologically, every society in history had a symbiotic, um, stewardship with animals. I I am a slave to my sheep. I take good care of them. And I don't like slaughtering them, but that, that is part of the humility and gratitude of life. It's, there are people clamoring here in Vermont. There are articles about why we should boycott Vermont dairy products and meat because they slaughter the boy cows. Literally, that's the title. I cannot afford to raise, you know, a dairyman cannot raise all his bulls. Half of the calves, unless you're using AI, are bulls. This is just how it's always been. So people are that disconnected from these ancient tens of thousands of years old bond with us and our cows that they're saying we should boycott them. But um, this disconnect ends badly. And there are people who profit from this, just like there are pe- people profiting off of exploiting race and gender, gender orientation and the rest. There, there are um, pernicious actors. And my hope, see, now I'm a lawyer and I have a big picture to win, which is I cannot trust the globalists or the government. How do I win that? I'd say, oh, you can't trust them. Well, if I want facts, then I want to pick my strongest case. And to me, one of my strongest cases is my cows. And if I can show people that they are being absolutely lied to, not just by the government and industry, by the mainstream media who is owned by that government and industry, that is a form of fascism. They are fascistically controlling your mind. Now, if you see that with cows, maybe we can, what is it, red pillia? We can maybe wake you up. You might look outside of the matrix and go, well, wait a minute. Are they lying to me about something else? Really? Right. You mean healthy children that are not at risk from COVID should take a shot that that uh, for which there's no liability that gives them myocarditis and makes them drop dead at 15? Yeah. Maybe there are some other things I should look at here. That's why I focus on cows.
1: Excellent point. I have a question for you. This is a slightly different topic, but still on food. I'm just curious, and this is to either of you actually. Um, So, you know, I don't even remember when it was a year or two ago, the report I did on the indoor vertical growing, the indoor vertical farming with the vegetables, and then they were starting to work on the fruits, and that was going to become this whole huge thing, uh, which was rather alarming at the time when I was digging into all that. I'm wondering what you guys have seen on that front is that starting to collapse because i do know that they were running into some issues with a major expense in uh just power supply you know which is not uh doesn't really fit their narrative with their usage there we're saving on water but we're using a ton more power supply so i'm just curious if either of you have seen any recent updates on the whole indoor vertical growing with the you know with the bigger companies the same globalists that have put the money into every, all the other agendas against humanity.
0: John, I'll give you the floor.
2: All right. I was going to give it to you, but um, I actually have <laughs> to, well, I've actually recently read an article about that. And, you know, and again, I try to be open-minded about things. Technology has accomplished, not you know, some things that were actually pretty cool. This was one. We can freely share information and disinformation, um, which our government is spewing out. So energy and water, and I think those are the two core issues. But again, let's, let's, not, let's not forget some other costs here. Um, I, I read with fascination a detailed piece about vertical farming. And in particular, and particularly in some climates, it could be very much a water uh, efficient system. It can also have some applications in urban settings. You know, we want to be able to feed people close to where they are. Part of small farm republic is about keeping food local. You don't have to transport it as far. If there are disruptions to supply chains or crises, you still have your food handy. Um, it's fresher. Uh, this is all true maybe of indoor vertical, but there are a few implicit problems that I think we have to ask you. you. hit on one, which is energy. And that maybe technology has an answer. I was recently talking to a guy who's really kind of a, he's, he's really brilliant and he studies this stuff in futurism. And they're looking at systems now, and I think they're already doing it where, they collect assets in remote areas where there are no people, and we first told me. I just know I'm old when I have to think too much to figure this out. And then they take these remote areas, let's say in the middle of the desert, it's desolate, and they put in a thousand solar panels, and they collect that energy, and they can they can then source that energy to operate it in one area. So maybe it would be vit- vertical farming, and then they ship out the food. So maybe there are technologies coming. Uh, But when we look at the externalized costs, we're back to, you know, all the oil and coal and other fossil fuels and chemicals and pollutants used in making the solar panels. And that brings us back to the idea of vertical, that somehow we're going to do inside what we could do outside, that somehow we're going to do with a solar panel what we did with blades of grass and trees. And I'm going to use an analogy now for you, which is cannabis cultivation in Vermont, which 20 years ago was so illegal that our National Guard black helicopters flew around looking for people and landing in their farmer yards when they had like two pot plants out in the garden with their hippie wife, you know, um, picking beans. And now it has become legalized, has become really expensive from what I understand. And it's a really polluting industry. They're all indoors, right? So now you've built a building, in Vermont, that you have to heat year round, you're powering it, the electricity is coming in, um, you've, or you're gonna cool it. So all kinds of air control, you gotta wear all kinds of plastic when you go in, so you don't get nymphs or spiders or aphids or whatever they get in there, cause it's not outdoors where the sun kills these things. So, and then you need chemicals. And recently I read a study or heard a study about all kinds of phthalates or other contaminant chemicals that are just absolutely saturating all the pots and everything. And then you have to have cameras going to watch it for security, according to the state. So you know how good that is for the environment to have a bunch of cameras. And I talked to one guy, um, he's paying $20,000 a year in bank fees on his marijuana cannabis you know, sales operation. They're just milking the cow. So now pot is more expensive than ever. And it's illegal for people to grow it outdoors. They can now grow it up to eight plants in their yard, but it's illegal for them to grow it outdoors and then sell it to other people. You can you imagine we did this with tomatoes now? So I can't sell you tomatoes anymore. And they're all going to be grown in a 10-story high cockroach slash tomato facility or something. It's, it's just at some point, I think it runs into the same kinds of um, limitations that it sounds great, but you run into the limitations of reality. I think you hit on it. I think the energy. I think they often don't factor in the energy. So it may have some applications, but I throw out some thoughts. I hope I have not overindulged my well- time
1: there. No, no. Well, but not to mention though, like with the globalists, the, the you know the the corrupt ones that are invested in it are looking at doing gene editing with the products, and they've also talked about injecting you know vaccines into the lettuce and stuff like that. So, so that was a huge red flag for me um, when I was digging well, into and you it. You also
2: have total total control if you everything's indoor, it's just exactly. like meat. You know, exactly. if it's synthetic meat, I can't get it other than through you.
1: Right. I was envisioning, you know, in the future, they've got these buildings with guards in front, so you can't access the food.
0: Well, I just and think if of you're... it. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I was just saying your digital ID is not allowing you to buy it anymore. So,
0: yeah, so I was ahead. just gonna t- I was going to compare what happened in the medical field. You know, in the early turn of the 20th century with, you know, the Rockefellers taking over and really creating the pharmaceutical industry, everything was sort of naturopath back back then. And they realized you can't patent anything that's natural. So let's yes. make a synthetic version that we can patent and then we own it and we can completely have total control over you know the the supply and the demand of that you know that medicine and so it seems like the same sort of thing is happening with food where it's like they can't patent you know god-given foods you know that are bountiful and and free to to all they have to make a synthetic version of it that then they can then have total control over right
2: well you may be familiar with the um monsanto v bowman case so they did patent uh dna in their in that case gmo soybeans Um, and for your listeners so bowman was a farmer out i think in iowa perhaps and he bought some monsanto seeds that were uh, roundup ready so they were resistant to roundup with all those features the glyphosate and he kept back some of the um some of the seeds that he grew from those plants and then the next year He planted those soybeans and he actually contacted Monsanto and he said, hey, guess what? That Those soybeans you sold me that were Roundup Ready, uh, they still work next generation. So they sued him because he didn't buy them from them. And that case said that they do own the genetics. Can you imagine if I sold you a dog and then every puppy you ever owned out of that dog was mine? I said, how dare you sell puppy? That's my dog In in perpetuity. That's what they've done with GMO crops. There's this hidden little thing. And by the way, most... Most, you know, they parade around the GMOs are going to increase productivity. They're, they're really not um, to, to grow larger crops or to grow crops that are chemical resistant so they can sell more chemicals uh, because that's where the big profits are is in the chemicals and the factories. That's our farming now, destroying the soil, increasing erosion, polluting our water in the name of feeding us and saving us. And now we have to get rid of the cows. So as you're speaking, I'm remembering uh, Bill Gates actually said that we only need 150 cows on the, on the face of the earth to feed the planet. Because of course, then they would just have something to d- withdraw the DNA from to do their cell growth. Well, that's obviously Pop. That just shows he's either a liar or a fantasist, probably both. But if there only aren't 50, 150 cows, I'd like to own five of them because they'd be worth a lot of money. <laughs> and that gets us back to why I think cows are about to go through the roof. Because you know the more they come after your hamburgers, the more you're going to clutch them. You know, it's in the end, you don't have a Second Amendment, by the way, if you're starving to death. You will turn over your guns and ammo to watch your children stop weeping from the ache in their stomach. Americans have forgotten the Great Depression and they're about to potentially relieve it, relive it. And we had 27,000 dairy farms in Vermont in 1929. And now we have 575, I think, consolidated farms with many more people. And one of the pressures that's, a, that's a, this is interesting, we talk about market bubbles. I don't know if it's a bubble when cow prices go through the roof, because what's happening is ranchers and farmers all across this country had to drop their herds, including breeder cows that they were they were they were tears shed cows that they spent years and generations falling in love with because I can fall in love with my girls because I'm going to keep them in old age. Same with my sheep. The rams, I try not to get too attached. Right. That's how it works. Well, now I've sold 30 of my beloved cows in a drought because I didn't have the corn or hay to feed them and I would have lost my farm. Now my grass is growing again and I don't have enough cows to fill it. So A, I'm not gonna have as many heifers to sell to market because I'm gonna keep them back as breeder stock. So animals that are a a year old that might've gone out and been sold in the feeder lots to be finished for another year are not going there. And a lot of people coming in either people trying to rebuild their their breeding stock or more entrepreneurs, the higher price of beef goes, the more entrepreneurs will get in. The more people like Bill Gates and others, and even venture capitalists will go out and start buying cows and cow futures, futures driving up the price. Now more people want to buy what? Not meat for burgers, but cows to keep back and breed. You don't want the golden egg. You want the golden goose, right? That lays them. That means there's an additional... Huge pressure. That can be a huge pressure in in beef markets, in in any market, as you can see. So it takes, people don't realize you can make eggs every day. You can make chickens in six weeks. You can have a chicken ready for a broiler. We make tens of millions of them a day. You can take a pig. You can breed them twice a year. Gestation period of a pig is 114 days. She's going to have eight, maybe 12 piglets each gestation. They grow up in five, six months. You're eating pork. And lambs are what uh, 148 days gestation, uh, you know, uh, four or five months old, you're eating them. Cows take two years on grain, two and a half years grass fed. And you only get one per. You don't get twins and triplets like sheep, you don't get eight or 10 piglets twice a year on pigs. So Americans are about to learn a little bit about where their food comes from, because what this means is you can't just rebuild your herds really quickly. You can't just gear it up because like everybody wants a, a tickle me Elmo and turn on the factory switch and make a bunch of widgets. This is this isn't something the factory can make. They can't make it synthetically. And and anybody thinks that we should get rid of our cows doesn't know anything about their peril, let alone agriculture.
0: Well said. One last topic before we wrap up. While wait, we're I on- have
1: a quick. I have a quick question. Go for it. As far as imports and exports on meat in the U.S., do you have any idea? Since since you seem to know all numbers and percentages, I'm just curious. We do you know like roughly what what our exports are versus imports when it comes to meat? I'm curious.
2: Well, that's very interesting. And so I don't want to speculate on current numbers, but a couple of things that I think are relative to what we've been talking about is that um, one of the reasons that beef prices stayed low during COVID, so off the radar of consumers, relative to things like eggs and chicken and pork was because we had a lot of animals going to slaughter from the drought. But also when processing facilities shut down, we increased our imports of Brazilian beef, I think by almost 60%, I think it was 57%. So that too, that's interesting because that supplemented our beef stock short term probably drew down some Brazilian beef stock. So it's curious what their inventories are now. Um, But the Biden administration has just announced that it plans to open the U.S. up to Paraguayan um, beef. And that could be an interesting factor. That could counterweigh, depending on how many they have for export, some of the concerns I have. Um, So I don't really know where it stands though we are, we do actually export a lot of our top cuts of beef. Um, There's quite a market over there. We're actually exporting hay grown in Arizona to China and Saudi Arabia to feed racehorses, losing a lot of water. So there are a lot of stuff moving around. I don't mean to get off base there, except to say a big problem that we have in this country, there are two when it comes to meat. One is that you can bring beef here from a foreign country and uh, and 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 just grind it up here and call it U.S. beef. Um, the the rules also on what's labeled grass fed, you can't really trust it unless it's your local farmer. See, more and more, <laughs> you can't trust what's in your store.
1: Didn't they recently uh, just change that label to say that you can't now if it says uh, in the U.S.A. they actually have to be raised in the U.S.A.
2: I don't believe so. Uh, there's there's a push to it, but I don't believe so. They actually got. They did at one time, and then they got sued in an international treaty, I think it was, and then used that as the justification for why we couldn't identify. But but please correct me if I'm wrong. I'll look into it. If that's I, could have the case, sworn,
1: I could have sworn that just that the USDA stated that um, end of last year or something, that it was going to go into effect this year, that the labels now had to say that. But maybe, well, maybe, I really, maybe, I, maybe they were pushing, yeah. but it wasn't 100% confirmed.
2: Well, I'll look into it as well, because if that's the case, I certainly don't want to misspeak, and I would like to hear that. I think consumers would like to hear that, and farmers. Yeah. All of the beef organizations have been lobbying very hard for that. Uh, but the other thing that they and we have been lobbying for that, your listeners and you should follow, is the PRIME Act, which yeah. you may know. Um, yep. But just to help um, help us on a local level for farmers and consumers to buy meats um, locally, and and that would really boost – our our local agriculture, and one really must ha- ask why. Uh, mostly Democrats, it is who are blocking that.
0: And that's um, Representative Thomas Massey, right?
2: That's who introduced it. Yes, he's got. Yeah, we've been too. pushing.
0: We've been pushing that out in a lot of
1: our articles and podcasts for for quite some yes. time. Now. Yeah, something so
2: to th- keep an eye on. Yeah. So yeah, uh, you need you need to have local food to have food security to have national security. So we really have to ask ourselves as a nation where our priorities are.
0: Yeah, definitely Absolutely. and I, I I I'm hoping that we're seeing a revival in that getting back to uh sourcing locally, also growing our own stuff, raising our own um as much as possible and networking locally. Um, I do feel like that is a trend that's moving upward as people become more aware of the potential for supply chain shortages, the potential for all of these sort of draconian restrictions on farming and, and producing. So I'm hoping to see um, that people really Take that seriously. Take their own food security into their own hands. Not trusting <laughs> the government to always provide,
2: mm-hmm. as
0: we've uh, as we've done for so long. Um, one last um, topic of discussion, and it's sort of a positive positive one uh, regarding the globalist takeover of our health. Um, Let's get into the WHO pandemic treaty. It's come out in recent weeks that negotiations for the pandemic treaty are falling apart, and Tedros is attributing uh, their failures, in part at least, to the so-called conspiracy theories, which suggests to me that we've been really successful in getting the word out about the dangers of this treaty, and we're winning, again, the narrative. Tell me your thoughts on that.
2: Well, it's, I was smiling because Tedros has really, oh, sorry, this is my microphone, made some really bold misstatements in labeling certain truths misstatements. misstatements. Um, it, it is exciting and hopeful to watch that the WHO has been put on the defensive. Now, maybe the WHO should be defensive about its treatment of the pandemics uh, for Ebola in Congo, which I've written about. Um, where uh, m- many of its workers I think st- over 30 were implicated um, m- m- many in in a in a pattern of sexual exploitation sex trafficking and rape including of a 13 year old the who which is part of the UN which oversaw um, recovery in Haiti which had a pedophilic sex ring there with over a hundred UN workers uh, operating there for over 10 years I think it was 12 years of pedophilic child sex ring not one person in either instance has ever been brought to bear of any kind of accountability and and mr tedros uh i can't pronounce his last name was actually there in congo 14 times during that time period Hmm. i'd like him to answer to that before he has authority to tell my kids to take an injection or decide what sex education is or call um abortion life-saving care involved in trying to unravel this uh, working with dr Nass and others just submitted another piece about this um, there are several levels that it's falling apart so-called misinformation that it would question uh, that it would challenge national or individual sovereignty or rights is being dismissed by the who oh, is disinformation when in fact i can tell you as a lawyer who studies it and has a background in international law that it, it is a very legitimate concern And if not, they should assure us that all of our individual rights to bodily autonomy, freedom of speech about vaccines, freedom to assemble, including in churches or other bodies or to protest vaccines, freedom to travel, all guaranteed in our U.S. Constitution. If they will not affirm them, you can tell that they're lying because the fact checkers and the entire mainstream media are joining him to dismiss any of us who question this. I guess they totally trust an international body to have unprecedented power over vaccines. Now, if you dig into this deliberately complex morass of regulations hidden in there are very clear directives to expedite processing and verification of um, vaccines for use, to strengthen immunization from liability of suppliers as well as the manufacturers, to have a data sharing of um, zoonotic whatever it is zoonotic Zoonotic. yeah (laughs) yeah zoonotic i got it there you wait till you get old you'll see um a little brain uh flatulence there and um the, the to to actually have open access in a data bank to the dangerous pathogens being studied as bioweapons it's kind of gain of function research writ large if you read through it, part of the pandemic treaty particularly favors equity. As you know, just as Biden winning election is more important than saving the planet, equity is more important than stopping a pandemic. So you have to bring doctors from developing countries over to your gain of function research facilities in developed countries and vice versa. And if you find a new dangerous disease, including in animals, you have to provide it to the data bank. So everybody has it. Gosh, that sounds like a horror movie to me. So a lot of member nations are balking about sovereignty, about the extent of control that who will have over local health measures, vaccines. There's another thing that strikes me because throughout a lot of these documents, you'll always see the equity stuff constantly includes not just race, but also QBGLT. The pandemic treaty talks about equity and wealth allocation and all this resource allocation based on equity, but never mentions sexual orientation or gender identity. And I believe there's a specific reason that they have not done that. And that is because out of the 194 countries that they need to solicit to get a two thirds vote of approval, a lot of them are traditional, especially African or Central American or South American nations. They're not going to buy into that. Okay. And they are going to say no. And all of a sudden you've got hesitancy, vaccine hesitancy. Or treaty vaccine treaty has has another area I've seen some documents I don't know if they're public or not but particularly in the EU uh, work on their uh, pandemic treaty contributions they're taking out a whole bunch of surveillance related content which according to the who is to quote uh, paraphrase but I believe the quote is uh, a, a, an essential tool for a robust robust pandemic response. And that they were they're gonna study it in a working group and introduce it later. It's because a lot of company countries try, well, what is this surveillance stuff? Vaccine passports? Are you gonna do the China thing? Because you know, you have to give up your liberties for your security and your safety. So I think on multiple levels, it's it's coming unraveled. And the more we point out each of those individual things, and and I would, and I would suggest people point out. Um, the betrayal of the victims in Congo, the most vulnerable of women and children in the Congo and Haiti. Um, These are war zones when there's a pandemic and these people have proven they're bureaucrats and they cover it up because they're more concerned about their reputation than the people they're entrusted to serve. So kind of like Pfizer and Oxycontin, I don't trust them. And the Catholic church had to pay money for what it did. And these people have relocated all these offenders, many of whom are doctors to to offend again. Why would I give them a nickel? Why are we even funding them until they are accountable? We're not talking cancel culture here. We're not talking something they're said to have done in 1972 at a frat party in blackface. We're talking about rape. Uh, And it's not what's going on in our media. Oh, don't worry. Trust the WHO. They won't take away any of your sovereignty or rights. They're the WHO. It just sounds wonderful. They're a health organization. They're a branch of the UN. And we're giving them supranational authority and powers when they're an unelected, bungling bunch of proven, untrustworthy, rapist, child sex ring operating bureaucrats. I object.
0: And let's I couldn't not... have said it better than that.
2: <laughs> right.
1: And let's not forget the ultimate power that the UN and the WHO and all 23 of their arms have is full immunity. So that means... Anything they were to carry out and do, all of their bank accounts, all of their documents, their headquarters, everything is inviolable. So they imagine what they can do with all of
0: that. Trust us; we don't have to show you anything or prove anything. Yeah. Just it, trust us. It's Even just though- like big
1: pharma having no liability, you mm-hmm. know
0: exactly that worked out well so so well for for the public. All right, so. John, before we go, can you give our audience some information on where they can find you, your book, your latest articles?
2: Sure. I'm headed for the hills. That's where you find me. Uh, I'm, <laughs> uh, my sub stack is Small Farm Republic. Uh, my book is Small Farm Republic. I write also regularly at Liberty Nation, which is growing. And the authors and editors there, we strive very, very hard, we're conservative, but we really strive for factual accuracy. Um, and we're growing, I think, because of that. Uh, there's a, a real effort towards quality writing, and, and I'm benefiting from that. And I, and I hope that your readers can as well. So uh, my Substack is free or paid, but I welcome people there. I welcome comments, criticisms, encouragement, sharing our stories. Um, Americans are coming together, and it's bipartisan. It really is to, to work on against these common foes um, who seek to impose a multiple layered totalitarianism on us
0: absolutely well john thank you so much for joining us today and giving us your insights really appreciate having you back yeah thank you, you so much i'm grateful
2: sorry cory welcome back cory we've oh, missed thank you, you. <laughs> the world needs you
0: uh indeed
2: we're allies we do we all need to keep working where we are winning by the way edge we, we are we're pushing the scrum
0: <laughs> we are <laughs> all right guys please be sure to check out all of john clark's amazing work we will leave links in the description below and please be sure to share this podcast we are on bitshoot foxhole gab tv iheart radio odyssey pilled rumble soundcloud spotify stitcher tunein no longer on youtube so be sure to subscribe to our other platforms and we'll see you back next time right here on digit
1: Thank you.